Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the Compact Nation Podcast, where we'll talk today about supporting non-traditional students. I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. I'm Andrew Seligson, President of Campus Compact. And today we have our first ever guest host. So Emily Shields, who you usually hear her voice coming through your speakers, is on important Campus Compact business today, so she can't join us. So we have our guest host, Cinda Nichols from Minnesota Campus Compact. Welcome, Cinda. Hi, everybody. It's so exciting to be here. Uh, I'm the Associate Director of Minnesota Campus Compact and, more importantly, an avid Compact Nation uh, listener. As I take my little evening walks around the neighborhood, I love listening to and learning from you all. So I'm, I'm really excited to be here and uh, both get a behind-the-scenes peek and, uh, and contribute to the conversation. Woohoo, that's what we like to hear. So if you're a listener, someday you could be a guest host as well. <laughs> so, uh, well, before we get into the interview and our discussion of supporting non-traditional students, we have a game we like to play if you're a listener of the Compact Nation podcast called Where in the World is Andrew? But today it is Where in the World Will Andrew Be? Yeah, that's right, because uh, today I am in Boston. Uh, where we have the intergalactic headquarters of Compact Nation. But I am going next week to a conference of the North American Society for Philosophical Hermeneutics. Mm. And that is, so somebody I mentioned this to the other day just started laughing. <laughs> I, don't I, even, that. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. I thought I would say something about what that is and why I'm going there. Um, so hermeneutics is the... There's different ways it gets defined, but it's something like the science of interpretation. It's definitely interpretation. It's all about interpretation. And when I was a kind of working political theorist, uh, hermeneutics was a central concern of mine because questions about how we understand each other and make sense of what each other are saying are pretty central to how we can practice democracy and deliberation and decision-making in a collective context. And... A friend of mine was organizing a panel at this conference on hermeneutics and democracy and asked if I would participate. And one of the things that occurred to me was, you know, this is an academic conference of mostly philosophers, but also political theorists and literary theorists who are teaching and researching. And I really wanted to kind of make the case to them that they should be thinking about how in teaching students about interpretation, they can engage students in democratic practices in learning oriented toward democracy. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to show up uh, and say yes to this invitation. And so the conference is in Baltimore, and I'm really looking to just, you know, looking forward to hearing how these kinds of issues are or are not showing up for philosophers in their classrooms and, uh, you know, to see how they respond to a kind of challenge to them to really think about changing their teaching to uh, engage students in democratic thinking as part of their philosophical education. So that's where I'll be next week. Wow, it sounds fascinating. I wish I could go. Like I always say, if you need somebody to help you take notes, carry your hat, any of that, just let me know. 
It's it's mostly the hat as you know, that it's carrying. That's very important. Yeah. Oh, and Cinda, we didn't tell you as a guest host that sometimes you might have to take notes or carry a hat or do any of the above. <laughs> that's no problem. I, as far as you know, I'm carrying a hat right now. Well, that's true. Are you carrying Julie's hat? <laughs> no, no, I wish I were. Julie is uh, in California right now. Oh, nice. Great. With Elaine, one of our other Zach? colleagues from California. So. Well, we'll transition into our interview today of supporting non-traditional students. I had the chance to sit down with Dr. Suzanne Buglioni, who is the Dean of Teaching and Learning at Bristol Community College in Fall Rivers, Massachusetts. Suzanne is widely published on community college and adult learner civic engagement, and her award-winning dissertation linked her passions for service learning and non-traditional students. She was a non-traditional student herself, so that coupled with her past life as a community organizer has really helped fuel her work. And I was just honored to be able to sit down with someone who is such an expert in supporting non-traditional students. So let's take a listen to that interview. Suzanne Buglioni, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thank you, JR. I'm thrilled to be here. So today we're going to talk about supporting non-traditional students and working with non-traditional students. I want to first begin asking you, how would you define non-traditional students in today's context? Is that age, uh, years away from a formal classroom, or is it much more than that? I think it's much more than that. Uh, my research has uh, really told me that this is a complex and diverse group of students. And um, even though we, uh, you know, higher ed tends to like uh, nice, neat definitions, uh, and that's probably the reason why most institutions use a 25 and older uh, benchmark to uh, both count and understand these students. But um, my research uh, has shown me again that it's important for us to focus on the characteristics of um, non-traditional students. And um, I advocate that people use a system uh, that I've used in my research, which is grounded in a couple of ways. First, in uh, the National Center for Educational uh, Statistics, uh, they have developed seven characteristics for uh, that identifies a non-traditional student and I love these characteristics because they have worked very well um, in the research that I've done the first of uh, these characteristics is uh, delayed enrollment into post-secondary education and that one we kind of uh, expect right they didn't go right from high school into a college setting uh, the second one is financial independence, um, and that one is a critical one when we think about the roles and responsibilities outside of the classroom for these students. Um, the third one is that they work full-time while they're enrolled in classes, and that's true for some, but not true for others. Uh, the next one is that they're enrolled part-time in their studies. Um, and the last three are that they have a dependence other than a spouse, they are a single parent, and they lack a high school diploma. So perhaps they got a GED or did a high set or came to post-secondary ed in a non-traditional way. And so what NCES does with these characteristics is they say that if you have one of them, 
you have one of these characteristics, you are a non-traditional student. But there's also a formula that says that if you have multiple characteristics from this list, there's a cumulative effect. And the cumulative effect uh, produces higher and higher risks of non-completion for degree programs. Um, I, my uh, non-traditional universe, or what I advocate people use, is, there's actually a, a model in um, one of my uh, chapters in, um, in the Service Learning in the American Community College book, um, is also for us to draw some characteristics from the literature. And um, the literature tells us that they, uh, these students are often low income. They often represent uh, people of color uh, in a, in a, in a, uh, a high, at a higher percentage than traditional students. Uh, they're first generation students, many of them. Uh, they're always commuters. Uh, they have, uh, many of them have immigrant histories uh, and they have family and work demands. And particularly in the community colleges, we also see uh, many students who are underprepared for college work, maybe needing some developmental education or some specialized bridge programming. And so the last piece that I'll also add from this uh, that comes from uh, my research is that the students that I have interviewed have spoken at length about how they are unsupported by family and friends. Mm. So often when a traditional student goes to college, traditional age, everyone is excited. Friends are excited, families are excited because this is a monumentous event. Uh, for older uh, or non-traditional students, uh, friends and families are concerned and they're worried about the, uh, the possibility that they might not be able to uh, support their economic needs because they can't work as much or that their families will be neglected, um, that their work will be neglected. And so they often come to this experience of coming to college in a way that uh, lacks that kind of celebration and support. They're, um, the last thing, JR, is that they have a different experience at college. And so they have more of a unidimensional experience because they typically are coming to class uh, and then leaving the campus. Mm -hmm. And um, so they're not engaged in some of the support structures we have in higher ed, like co-curricular activities and residence life. Those things are really designed for traditional students. Even orientation is often designed for traditional students. And so they are not only disconnected from their institutions, but they're also disconnected from students as peers. Mm -hmm. um, this, is, this is a really challenging uh, population to think about for higher education and for community engagement because simultaneous to these challenges, uh, we know that uh, these students are 40% of all of our undergrads. Mm -hmm. And so it's an interesting uh, paradigm where our institutions are not designed for them, yet they make up such a large portion of the population.
So given the rising number of non-traditional students on college campuses and also looking at the rise of community engagement in higher education being embedded across institutions right now and looking at the unique circumstances non-traditional students face, what does the portfolio of activities look like for students uh, who are attending an institution where community engagement is deeply embedded across the curriculum and co-curricular activities? So I think that uh, there are two two parts to that, uh, to answer that question. It's a big question, right? It, it is. <laughs> <laughs> one, one part is to um, understand the, the unique and special gifts that they bring to, uh, to the classroom mm -hmm. and to community engagement. And the second part is to understand what that means for us in terms of uh, partnerships, right? Yes. So I'm gonna speak to the gifts first, if that's okay. Yes, go ahead. Um, so, you know, as much as these, these individuals can bring uh, challenges and deficits to, the, to their work as college students, and particularly to community engagement, they bring a host of gifts, um, ones that we've really not talked about much in the community engagement field. So the first, the first thing they bring is that um, they are community members. So frequently in our work in community engagement, we're trying to understand how to uh, uh, develop reciprocity between our students and community members. We're trying to help uh, to be able to understand what our community members' experiences are. These students are community members. They live in our communities. That's their home. They work there. Many of them parent there. Many of them are citizens there. And so they really understand what it means to contribute to the well-being of a community, which is a great uh, asset that they bring. As learners, they have a high value for learning. They're very intrinsically motivated. They're doing this despite the odds, so to speak. They're also looking for uh, um, meaning in the work that they do. You know, as an adult, if we're in an environment and we're not finding that this is meaningful to us, we tend to be uh, dissuaded in some way. We might start making our grocery list. We might start. Mm -hmm. We might start doing some other kinds of things. We're distracted, uh -huh. and so they're looking for meaning in their learning and community engagement. Is we know has this deep kind of learning that takes place that's full of meaning and transformation. Um, they're looking for integration with their lives. So for these uh, students, the, the identity of being a college student is really last on the list. Uh, they are much more so in tune with their identities of being a worker, of being a parent, of being a, uh, e even a civic participator. Um, and so we want to uh, help them to integrate what they're doing in school, in their college and uh, career, with what's happening in their life. And community engagement offers a unique opportunity to link those two pieces together. Um, and, and that's a real asset for these students, particularly when you think about community engagement and the important elements of action and reflection that's how adults live, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
They bring a lot of prior experience, like I said before, which also includes the fact that they have relationships with partners. If you walk into a classroom of non-traditional students and you ask them how many of you participate in your faith community, how many of you participate in your children's PTO, how many of you participate in your neighborhood association, you're going to see typically a, a decent level of existing citizen uh, participation. And that means a different thing, uh, a different paradigm for us as we think about community partners. I'm going to speak a little bit more to that in a minute. They also come uh, with both the need uh, for uh, understanding social justice and the experience of living some of our social justice issues. And so they, they need a new lens to understand these things that they've experienced, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have experienced discrimination. Sometimes they have experienced frustration with some of our social issues, but they don't have a lens that provides analysis and they don't have a lens about how to move to action. Um, they also want to know about their disciplines because this is a new venture for them, many of them, and their goals are often related to a new career path. Um, and so this is, again, community engagement, which is linking the, the contents of their discipline with, uh, with uh, application in the field is a really great way for them to begin to understand themselves, not only as students, but as future professionals. They have a lot of confidence and maturity, and our community partners like that, uh, but they don't have it in the community. I mean, they don't have it in the classroom. Mm -hmm. They have it in the community. They're used to being in the community. They're used to working in the community, um, but in the classroom, that's a place where they don't have that kind of confidence and skills. And so, again, uh, uh, academic experiences that help them to integrate those things can be very helpful. Um, and, um, and I think that when we think about partnerships, I want us to go back to the fact that they have existing partnerships. And so sometimes that might mean for us that we're, that we're asking them who partnerships should be with that we're uh, enabling them to bring preformed uh, partnerships into the classroom mm -hmm. uh, as part of the, uh, the community work. And um, they, they also uh, help us to, um, to think about themselves as partners. And that's one of the things that the non-traditional students in my research have been really clear about they would like to be perceived as a partner in the work. And we don't typically think about students as partners. There's some research that is coming forward, some thinking that is coming forward about that, and it's particularly true for, for non-traditional students. And then in terms of our partnerships, we have to think about the barriers that our non-traditional students experience, that kind of juggling that they're constantly doing with their lives because of multiple demands. And so we wanna be particularly attentive to uh, transportation issues. We wanna be particularly attentive to when they can do their service hours. It may not be uh, the same as traditional students. And that may challenge us and our community partners to be more creative. We want to think about the fact that 
engaging their families in volunteer service can be really, really helpful. They don't have to think about what am I going to do with my kids. They may do this as family activities. There's some great modeling that happens there for uh, helping their children to think about being civic participators. Um, and lastly, some of our faculty that we've interviewed um, uh, in the work that Amanda Whitman and I have done uh, really have told us that uh, not only family uh, engagement for service is helpful, but also sometimes locating our classes at our partner organizations so that students can have uh, be at those organizations and have a different paradigm than the typical classroom on our college campuses. So there are a lot of gifts uh, that our students bring, these non-traditional students, and um, there are a lot of implications for how we can best utilize those gifts. And it seems like non-traditional students, based on that, are in some ways more poised to take on community engagement work in higher education. Some of our listeners are from um, four-year institutions, and I've had faculty at four-year, more traditional institutions say to me, well, I really worry about incorporating service learning into my courses because I do have non-traditional students. I worry about them going into spaces where they may receive services. What would you say to a faculty member who, who might say something like that to you? I think that's really a really important uh, consideration. I think that um, the way that the service is framed makes all the difference in the world. So if, uh, if those individuals, those non-traditional students, are in organizations or partnerships where we, uh, they are receiving services, they may have a lens for what needs to happen uh, in, those, uh, in those partnerships, how we can affect change in those partnerships. Um, I think it's the framing of what that looks like. I think it helps us as a field to move forward, leaving behind the service to at versus the service with. Mm -hmm. And so I think again, our students, our students in the in our interviews talked a lot about um, wanting. This is kind of a little bit funny, but wanting to be treated like they saw graduate students being treated. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be engaged as peers. They wanted to be. They wanted their experience to be respected. Some of them talked about how they were older than their faculty members, mm -hmm. and um, and not that not that there's a, a shift in the power differential so much as there's an understanding of the mutual assets that they bring. And I think we're all striving for that in our relationships with community partners is to understand the mutual assets that we bring. Mm -hmm. So they're really spanning community partner and student at the same time. They are. It's inherent in their identities for the most part. Well, how can we as educators better support non-traditional students in deepening their civic engagement and civic leadership skills if they are really wearing that hat? I mean, it seems like they have so much to teach us. Um, how do we work with them to help them deepen their civic engagement and civic leadership? So I've, I've really been honored to, to ask this question of non-traditional students because they have some very specific strategies that they think we need to undertake. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is really to know them and to understand them. 
to draw in their identities and their experiences, their skills and their confidence. They, they really want to find ways in which they can contribute to the dialogue and to the, 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 the development of the service projects. And so understanding their characteristics and engaging them in some way is really critical. It could be in the way we do introductions in class. It could be in, a, in one of our reflective pieces where we ask them to talk about uh, their, the characteristics of their, uh, their roles and experience. Um, it, it could be, it could be uh, in many different ways that we do that. Um, I think that they also are very clear that although they have skills and confidence in the community, um, and that's a setting where they feel they bring um, some maturity, uh, that they don't want to uh, parent other students, mm -hmm. and they really want to. Uh, they don't. They don't mind taking leadership roles, but they don't want to be responsible for other students. And that's a paradigm that I think uh, we as educators need to keep in mind. Um, they they have asked specifically uh, and noted uh, examples of when uh, faculty have. Uh, really looked at their curriculum. When they have really made the curriculum such that the service is very relevant and not something adjunct to the course, where the connections between the course content and the service are explicit, um, and where they also are explicit around what this discipline does in the community. Uh, that's a way for students to connect uh, their home life and their school life uh, and for that for non-traditional students that's a really important thing to do and in my view community engagement is designed to do that mm -hmm. when we are able to sort of check off those boxes is when we know we've done uh, we've done the model justice right the pedagogy mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. even the movement justice um, they they talked about um, obviously things that will help them to uh, be more engaged, right? To break down some of those barriers, as I mentioned earlier, things like what hours they can do service, what, whether there's transportation, whether they can bring their family. They even talked about reading. So some of the students talked about how the faculty member had been so thoughtful and intentional in choosing readings for the course that they literally connected to the communities they were working in. Mm -hmm. And that had a double powerful effect for these non-traditional students. One is that it made the service more relevant because they were also readings that connected to that community. And they, some of them were like newspaper readings. They weren't, you know, academic mm -hmm. or, or, uh, or research readings, uh, more popular kinds of things. But, but also was affirming to them because they live in those communities. And so that's a small thing that they mentioned that was really important to them. Mm -hmm. They talked about group work and project-based work. You know, the data tells us that 45% of our undergrads are involved in, in group work or some kind of project-based work with other students. But for non-trads, there's only 21% are involved. And of course, at first glance, you think, how could they possibly do group work mm -hmm. with all of the demands that uh, that are that they're juggling, right? Mm -hmm. um, and 
we have so many kinds of technology tools now that group work can be uh, uh, virtual. Mm -hmm. Group work can take place at the at the close of a class in 15 minutes that a faculty might allot for that. So there are a lot of different ways we could come at group work, but group work was critical for non-traditional students because of the isolation that they feel, because of the disconnection between themselves and their peers um, at their colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. They also said that they needed skills to do group work. And I think this is something I can say for myself, uh, having taught for the last 17 years, I always grapple with this. How am I going to prepare students to do group work? And these non-traditional students articulated it very well. They talked about how they need skills to negotiate challenges with their peers. They talked about how they need skills for planning so that if they're doing group work, let's say a project in the community together, that everyone's going to know exactly who's doing what and with what deadlines so that they don't have that experience of, oh my gosh, my group members are slacking. Mm -hmm. um, they need skills around dialogue, this kind of intergroup dialogue. Sometimes the older students or the non-traditional students see themselves so differently than the traditional students um, and vice versa, that they only see the deficits and don't begin to see the assets. Students in my interviews talked about how they learned so many technological skills from younger students and students, the younger students learn so many things from their experience. It's a perfect uh, combination as long as there's that opportunity and that preparation for them to do so. And that relies greatly on the pedagogical skills of the faculty member. Mm -hmm. this, um, this kind of dialogue, this kind of preparation for a group reflection, it's kind of like being a cultural broker. You know, we think about that sometimes when we're trying to, in a, with a traditional group of students, how are we going to equip them to have the best possible experience in a neighborhood that looks nothing like them? Mm -hmm. Here we're talking about doing that even in the classroom because we have some non-traditional students and some traditional students. And I think the other part of this is that, you know, for me, community engagement also has a lot to do with changing our institutions and how we can help them to be more inclusive, how we can help them to, uh, to uh, make connections with all of our students, with the community. And so there's another element here that is an opportunity for us to help our institutions think about non-traditional students. Mm -hmm. It feels like to me, it's a real asset having non-traditional students in the classroom. So going back to the special gifts that they carry with them and thinking about them being integrated within the classroom, it feels to me like they're right for community engagement experiences. And if the faculty member sets up the experience correctly, and, and we would hope that even if there are non-traditional students in the classroom, that the experiences are being set up in a way that there is a pre-orientation and understanding and all of that. But it seems to me that having these students in the classroom provides multiple opportunities for them to be engaged, to talk about their communities, for, to also uh, allow the other students who are not non-traditional um, 
learn from them and learn together. So it sounds like having non-traditional students in the classroom actually may be more beneficial than a room full of just uh, traditional age college students. There are some significant assets. And I think it goes back to the broader ideas around diversity, that the more variants we have, the more perspectives, the more experience, the, uh, that, that the, there's a richness that comes with that. I will say one thing, and that is that like our, many of our traditional age students, non-traditional students in the beginning of their community engagement uh, journey cannot imagine how they're going to pull it off. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we have found is that it's important that it be required for their, their, uh, their uh, academic experience. And because what happens over time with the support of the faculty and with these pedagogical techniques Um, They figure out, yes, I can do it. And then what our students told us afterwards was that they would do it again in a heartbeat. It was the most amazing experience for them because it really helped solidify them as a student, which we don't typically think about as an outcome of Mm -hmm. community engagement work in our institutions. Mm -hmm. Over the next five to 10 years, what opportunities and challenges do you see in meeting the matriculation needs of our non-traditional students? We still, JR, we still have a bunch of challenges ahead of us. I think the first one is how we define these students. We don't have common definitions uh, to use an age requirement from my perspective is uh, is a, a is discounting all of the characteristics that um, that we know are part of their experiences, um, and so counting them, naming them, even the the term non-traditionals. So you know when when the the time comes when they're more than fifty percent of our population, will mm-hmm. that still make sense to us? That's that's a question I don't know the answer. It's to. a very good point. Um, we, we need to support our faculty. We need to help them develop these pedagogical skills. We need to help uh, uh, move ourselves as educators to this idea of co-creation of knowledge. And that's where we can really engage our students and all of the assets that they bring more fully. Some, some of our disciplines are still struggling with uh, how to do community engagement. And, uh, and that may be, again, another opportunity for us as we move forward. Um, I think that, you know, this, this pedagogy really does help students prepare for careers. Um, when we have multi-generational classrooms and diverse classrooms, our students are going to build those skills with our help uh, that they will use in the workplace because that's what our workplace looks like now. And so I think that there's a lot of hope in that as long as we're intentional. And I think that it's an opportunity for us to change our institutions uh, to really commit more fully to the goal of being community engaged and to understand that our traditional age population is shrinking. We, uh, the projections in the United States are that that population will continue to shrink at least until 2021. And so that could mean decreased enrollments for us. And so how can we engage these non-traditional students more fully and keep them 
to uh, retention and to graduation. These are big issues for us. And I think community engagement can be that lever. Mm -hmm. You've received a Cross Papers Fellowship with the League for Innovation in the Community College, and you'll present your work at their 2018 Innovations Conference in March of uh, this academic year in Maryland. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm excited about this. Uh, I'm honored to be to be named the Cross Fellow. I have such respect for the work that Patricia Cross did, and um, I'm excited about a monograph that I'm preparing. The monograph is uh, focused on uh, helping community college faculty members to engage social justice issues in their classrooms across the disciplines. Um, and I'm excited about this because I think this is an important um, part of what we need, our institutions need at this time, uh, what our, our, uh, our co uh, country's climate uh, needs at this time. Uh, I think that uh, some disciplines are more prepared to engage social justice issues than others. Uh, when, when the folks at League for Innovation uh, uh, interviewed me for the fellowship at one of the final stages. They asked me, how might uh, people who teach automotive technology engage social justice issues in their <laughs> classrooms? And, um, and so part of the monograph will, uh, will provide a set of questions that uh, every discipline can use to try to identify the issues that are relevant for their discipline. Um, and some very significant strategies about how to do that in their classroom uh, so that uh, for community engagement, it means that our students are more well prepared. Uh, for community college, because our students are largely non-traditional, it means that we're going to understand a little bit better how to engage them uh, more fully in our classrooms as well as any uh, community engagement work that might take place outside of our classrooms. Um, and so I'm very excited about this opportunity to delve into uh, these, uh, these theory and strategies that will give uh, faculty members tools to be able to do this in their classrooms. So if folks want to learn from you, they can just Google League for Innovation in the Community College and it will pull right up the 2018 Innovations Conference. And it will. They can register for that. And they can see you in the flesh and be able to learn from you. They, uh, it will. And the monograph will be uh, shared by the League um, and it will be introduced at that conference. So uh, I'm very excited about this opportunity. Great. Dr. Suzanne Buglioni, thank you so much for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast. JR, it's been a pleasure. I think that there's never a time when I'm not willing to talk about the student population. So thank you. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Suzanne Buglioni. I, as I mentioned before, just uh, was honored to be able to sit down with a person who's an expert on not only uh, supporting non-traditional students, but someone who has been able to marry supporting non-traditional students around community engagement and service learning. Cinda, what did you think about the interview? Well, I, uh, I really enjoyed, especially her, her focus on, on students' assets and centering that. That was one of the things that, you know, first resonated with me and thought, ah, we're, we're looking at the world through a, a similar lens here. Um, you know, and one of the things that was, I think, most provocative and challenging for me was um, when she talked a little bit about 
preparing students for uh, community engagement and and the questions and the readings that we pose, who do we assume the audience is? So it's not just um, taking existing community engagement pedagogy and experiences and, and plugging different people in, but what if our readings assume um, that our students are new to the community or unaware of certain struggles, um, it really kind of others non-traditional students. So I really, it made me think a lot about what, um, what are the conversations that we might need to have or do we have to have differentiated um, curriculum or conversations with, with students to recognize and acknowledge um, what they're bringing to their engagement? I, uh, you know, one of the things that I started doing as I was listening, I've, I've had the chance to, to work with Suzanne and interact with her. And obviously she's just uh, so full of insight and passion. So it's always just exciting to hear her and think with her. But I really started thinking about my own experiences in the classroom and working as an advisor, working with non-traditional students. And th that point about their being just kind of loaded up with assets and opportunities to teach their fellow students, to teach faculty, that just really uh, resonated with me. And I was thinking in particular of a student who I worked with when I was an advisor at the University of Minnesota while I was in grad school. Her name was Jane. Uh, she was pursuing an interdisciplinary degree, and I worked in an office that supported students like that. And it just happened that my partner in life, Martina, was also teaching Jane in a composition course. And Jane was a student who had started college in the late 60s, uh, and she is visually impaired. And the late 60s, of course, was way before the ADA. And essentially, there was no way for her to complete her college education because the institution could not accommodate her. And so after the passage of the ADA, she came back to college in the 90s and was, she's extremely bright, hardworking, committed, and she had decades of pent up energy to pursue her education. And she had educated herself to start about the law and what was required of us, the institution. And so she did so much work educating people at the university about how to accommodate members of the disability community and how to engage them fully in their education. And, you know, she, she didn't get any credit for that. She didn't get mm. any pay for that. But the, the value of what she brought to the university was so much greater than sort of thinking of her as somebody who didn't fit neatly into a category would suggest. And so just that, that really kind of hit home for me, the, the kind of power of non-traditional students when we recognize them as educators and community members bringing interests and relationships and commitments to the table. Yeah, I really enjoyed when Suzanne mentioned that we have to look at our non-traditional students as partners and that they often want to be viewed that way. Uh, my experience in higher education prior to coming to the Compact, I worked on a college campus that had mainly traditional age students. And I was worried about how I could accommodate the needs of our non-traditional students. And even in my role now with Campus Compact and working with faculty, I'll often get the question, and Suzanne and I talked about this in the interview, uh, of well, what do I do for my course because I'm not sure if it fits for a non-traditional student and I don't want them to feel put out or like they don't have the time to take part in my course because it's community based. And I, I really liked how Suzanne said that's really the wrong way to approach it. It's a valid concern, but 
we should really be looking at our students and our non-traditional students as, as colleagues and looking at them as partners. And there are lots of valuable ways to involve their families in the process uh, to help them or to have them help think about who uh, partners in the communities may be and really have them uh, serve in an educational capacity. And that really was an aha moment for me. It just had never clicked before. And, and I found that valuable just to hear that perspective from Suzanne. Yeah, I really appreciated the way she um, disabused us of this idea that there are community members and then there are students and they're different people. And I think, you know, it sounds like for non-traditional students, often one and the same. But a lot of what she said, I found myself thinking, hey, you know, I bet a lot of that would resonate for, quote unquote, traditional students, too, who, you know, increasingly their their lives and their education are intertwined and, and happen in the same place. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I think a lot of times when we start to think about a particular population, right, we, we end up kind of recognizing things that just turn out to be true about human beings. So, like, you know, part of what we're saying is pay attention to who your students are, pay attention to the ways they don't fit some pre-existing stereotype someone might have of a college student, the conditions of their lives, their own aspirations and what they bring to the table. And of course, yeah, whether a student is traditional age or not, all of those things are just the right way to treat human beings and students. And it just sometimes takes kind of focusing on a case that looks like a special case to recognize something that's actually universal. Mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to her forthcoming research on students as colleagues and primarily non-traditional students as colleagues, because I think that research, while focused on non-traditional students, as you mentioned, can apply to traditional students as well. I was also amazed, um, well, I guess amazed isn't the right word, but just really uh, taken aback by the statistics around non-traditional students. I didn't realize the percentage of student non-traditional students in our campuses was so high. And she mentioned that in the new near future, that percentage could be as high as 50%. And at that point, what does non-traditional even mean? And so that was just really eye-opening for me, um, thinking about the populations on our campuses already. I think you know one of the things we we learn as we look at the, the for example the broad range of institutions that are members of campus compact community colleges, urban institutions, you know uh, very selective private institutions. We have this broad range of institutions, and it yeah it stops being the case that there is a kind of typical college student or a typical student population, uh, and it really is the case that our students in very deep ways reflect the diversity of the country we live in and the world beyond our borders. Obviously, we have many international students on our campus. And the more we think about the students actually in front of us at our institutions or in groups that we're working with or in groups we hope to reach, I think, yeah, we find we can we can design things that connect to those students much more deeply and actually advance the goals that we're seeking to pursue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was great to sit down with Dr. Suzanne Buglioni, and I enjoyed learning with and from her during that conversation. So we're going to move on to our segment called Pop Culture Corner, and this is where we take something happening in pop culture. It may be a reading, it may be a movie, it may be a podcast, and we try to connect it to our work of community engagement and higher education, and sometimes that works really well. Sometimes it's a little bumpy, and sometimes it doesn't really connect at all, and it's just really our chance to talk about what we're doing outside of our work in community engagement in higher education. So, Cynthia, do you want to start us out as our guest host? 
Sure, absolutely. You know, one of the things that I wondered if I'd hear from Suzanne was some conversation about money and um, paid opportunities for non-traditional students and and how, um, you know, the financial demands of, of everyone's lives, but, but their lives particularly might um, impact how we think about community engagement experiences. And that um, seemed particularly salient as I was listening to um, a couple of really powerful episodes. Maybe you guys are familiar with um, Anna Sale's podcast, Death, Sex, and Money. Mm. Um, she does. She did a two-episode uh, sequence back toward the end of June called Our Student Loan Secrets, and it was really profound to hear from people across the country um, telling stories that they had from in many ways kept secret about the impact of student loans on their lives um, and their professional paths uh, and their marriages and families and relationships. Um, and then in the second episode, stories of resilience and, and ways that they've um, moved through that. But it really, I, those couple episodes really uh, have stuck with me because I, I think um, that I try to keep those students' voices in my head as we're also doing the work of the compact and talking about civic engagement and, and social change work, um, those conversations are also happening for students too. And, and I hope that we can keep our work relevant, you know, and, and keep those two conversations sort of intermingled with one another uh, because there was just such an emphasis through these uh, storytellers about the shame that they had. And if, if people aren't talking about their experiences with money and, and loans and things like that, then how can we um, integrate it into our conversation about, about leadership and, and community work? Yeah, I think a really positive thing that's happened in kind of discussions of higher education that I'm connected to, at least, is that, you know, there is a much stronger focus on the economic well-being of our students and the economic impact of higher education on people's longer-term financial situations than there has ever been before. I think in maybe the last two years, I would say, there's been a, a huge uptick from, from my perspective. Um, I think we've talked before a little bit about Sarah Bildrick Rabb, who's now at uh, Temple and the research she's done on poverty among college students. And I think there's a real focus on food security that some of our campus compact colleagues are starting to work on in serious ways. So yeah, I think that's that's just a great point about keeping these these realities connected to each other. So Andrew, what's your pop culture corner? Well, mine is um, my, well, I should say this, my actual connections with pop culture right now are so uh, heavily dominated by World Cup qualifying matches. <laughs> As always. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be that interesting. I, but so, because I was thinking, what podcasts have I been listening to? And mostly it's episodes of the Total Soccer Show. But I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> uh, and what I'm going to talk about instead is pop culture as long as you live in like the mid or late 1930s. Mm. Um, and I, so... Uh, of this, the story starts, I don't know, about a year ago or something. Uh, Martina and I were cycling, as we often do, in the roads around Boston, outside in beautiful little towns like Concord and whatever. And we were climbing up a hill, and off to the right, we saw this fabulous modern house sitting on this hillside. And I thought, what is that? That's a beautiful house. What is that doing here? And then I rode a little further, and there's a sign uh, and it is the Walter Gropius house. So Walter Gropius, some of you know, the founder of the Bauhaus, a great modern architect, and that was where his house was, which I had oh. not known. And it's now you know, owned by uh, Historic New England, and you can visit it. And so Martina and my mom and I went this weekend and visited the Gropius house. And 
So first of all, I just highly recommend this anytime you're in the Boston area, uh, considering a trip out there. It's in a beautiful spot, and it's an incredibly interesting house. But one of the things that just struck me was, so for example, you walk into the kitchen, and you don't feel that surprised by it. It's got these kind of clean sort of um, cabinets, like metal cabinets, very um, unornamented, very similar to lots of 1950s era uh, kitchen cabinets. But then they, the tour guide explained that, you know, this went in in the 1930s. These cabinets did not exist. No one had ever put them in a kitchen. And Gropius, because he envisioned these, had to buy them from like an industrial supplier. They were the sort of thing you'd see in a factory, but nowhere else. And it was just really striking to me the way things that become part of our popular culture, just very often it, it takes some visionary to see it beforehand. And, and mm -hmm. then in retrospect, it just doesn't look that amazing. But then you focus on it and you just think, wow, this is like he had a way of seeing what a house looked like that was really dramatically different from what anybody else had envisioned for a house up until that point. So that was kind of cool. And, and it is it's just a great place. But it was really inspiring to think about originality and innovation and boldness and kind of possibility. So. Um, and then it, you know, it also connected for just the the broader context of our national and global story that Gropius was a German who escaped uh, because of the Nazi regime and was only in America because we were open to immigrants coming here and putting their talents into practice. And, and that's a thing I, I don't want to lose in that story either. That is a really amazing, amazing story. My pop culture corner uh, will loosely or not at all connect to to our work. But I have to say, so American Horror Story season seven has begun. And Emily, <laughs> uh, our other co-host, is a huge fan, as am I. And just last night, the two of us were talking on Twitter about the new season. So I want to put that out there that it started and fall is near. And we're watching that and really the connection the community. So if you're if you're familiar with American Horror Story, it's an interesting show and every season changes. It's a different storyline, but the same actors playing different characters. And because it's so interesting, it just makes me think about how interesting our work is right now in community engagement and higher education and how interesting the world is um, in, in which we, we live. The other connection is that Ryan Murphy, who's the writer and uh, creator of American Horror Story, is from Indianapolis, which is where I am at. So there's that connection there as well. So really, loose connections, but I wanted to talk about American Horror Story, and Emily is a fan as well, so hit her up on Twitter if you want, because she loves to talk about uh, the work of Ryan Murphy and American Horror Story, so there you have it, not connected really to our work at all. But, but it, sounds like, it sounds like you might be saying that um, folks who attend the uh, 2018 Campus Compact National Conference in Indianapolis in March have a, a birthplace to visit. Is that what you're saying? That is true. I think that's a perfect connection to our work and plug, for, plug for the National <laughs> Conference in March in Indianapolis, uh, which we're excited to to have National Campus Com Campus Compact Global Headquarters, sorry, uh, right there in our in our backyard. But yeah, Ryan Murphy, uh, born and raised on the north side of Indianapolis, went to school at IU Bloomington. You've all expanded my idea of what a pop culture item can be even further here today. It's the visiting of houses of people you like. Got it. Yeah, I've got some of them. That's true. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's right. I, I think there are also in many states anti-stalking laws that are intended to prevent <laughs> some of that visiting. But okay. just, yeah, we just want to be clear about which side we're on. Yeah, that's true. And so if Ryan Murphy is happening to listen, happens to listen to this podcast, we will not stalk you. Please do not press charges against us. We <laughs> promise right. to create a safe environment for you if we happen to bump into you while everyone's in Indianapolis. <laughs> Cinda, I just want to note that, you know, you're our first um, guest host on the Compact Nation podcast, and this is all the first time we've, like, stumbled into litigation territory. So I mean, <laughs> there's an connection. Well, I hope you have me back then. Who knows what's happen? <laughs> yeah, this is definitely, uh, yeah, adding some intrigue. Yeah, it's, it's adding some spice to it, so... Well, that wraps up today's episode. We will be back the end of September for episode four when we'll sit down with Verdis Robinson from the Democracy Commitment. So thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jamison, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag compactnationpod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Hey Habiba, how was that for an episode?